been fascinated by talking to creative people, those who think differently, understand uniquely, and see the world in their own way. Now don't get me wrong, I love what creatives produce, but often, the story behind the story is what really inspires me, because I want to know where ideas come from, because that's where the magic happens. That's the creative backstory. Hello and welcome to The Creative Backstory. My name is Kelly Planer and we are here to discuss all things creative process. I have a great guest for you today. I met him at a bluegrass festival this summer, which might not seem odd until I tell you about bluegrassers. There is a uniform. It's all about comfort and color. So imagine me seeing a band called the Millbillies for the first time. Out comes the guitar player, Mark, in a plaid button down with the sleeves ripped off. He is in uniform. Then out comes Jeff Scheller, the bass player. I think he had overalls on and maybe tie-dye. He was in uniform. Then comes out this guy in a suit coat and a fedora type hat. He was also in uniform, but not a bluegrass uniform. He looked like a jazz player and a blues guy to me. And that's true. That's what he is. But he's other things too. And he was the best dressed man on stage, which isn't hard to do when you think about bluegrass uniformage. But here's the part that didn't matter. When he started playing harmonica, I didn't really care what he was wearing because the music was insanely good. He has gratefully agreed to be my guest today and we're on the phone. So again, we don't mind what he's wearing at all, but welcome Charlie Barat. Hi Kelly, thanks for having me. So what's with the uniform, man? <laughs> um, you know, I was always one to, uh, I, I love the idea of dressing for the stage, regardless of what that stage might be. Um, when I, uh, you know, when I hire a band to uh, play with me, it's always kind of implied, if not insisted, that they um, look like they belong on the bandstand. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if it's because of uh, primarily I'm kind of a blues guy. Um, I just like looking good. And personally, I think when the uh, performer is walking through the crowd, during the break or before or after a set, they should look different than everybody in the audience. <laughs> That's you really thought this through, and I appreciate that. I have a, a funny story about the people in my local bluegrass association. Um, they people will come up to me and say, "Hey, Bob Smith, you know him, right?" And I'll be like, "No," and they say. Oh, you know, he's the guy, you know, big kind of kind of has a belly, wears tie dye and a big bushy beard, which describes half of the population of the Bluegrass Festival. And then I'm like, oh, that Bob Smith. <laughs> Every bit. You know, the, the curious thing, speaking of the bluegrass world, um, when you go to see a um, traditional bluegrass ensemble, man, they're decked out in three piece suits and string ties, regardless of the weather. Truth. The sort of the younger new approach is, um, you know, hiking boots and cargo shorts and a tie dye shirt. And, uh, and I know a lot of younger people were turned on to the genre through uh, Grateful Dead and other jam band kind of uh, influences. Uh, and that's all well and good. But uh, when, uh, you know, 
go back in time a few years in the Millbillies, and uh, it was all I could do to get Jeff and our longtime guitar player, Sam Stuckey, to not look like that. <laughs> well, there is, there is, especially at festivals, there is a kind of come-as-you-are culture, and I appreciate that, but I also, I, you know, I don't mind the whole dress up and string tie thing either. It's just, I think it's just part of the culture. I always look at, you know, country culture is the same way. I mean, it's exactly what you said. You knew who the performers were by what they wore, not what they sounded like, you know? Right. Yeah. You could pick them out of the crowd. And uh, yeah, I always tell people if, uh, if you ever see a, a still photo or a video of me, on the stage wearing shorts, you can guarantee that it was not my gig and I was pulled up on stage to sit in for a tune or two. Uh, oh, so little secrets. That's good. Yeah. So, you know, tell me a little bit about, we'll, we'll leave the wardrobe up to uh, our listeners to uh, decide what's appropriate and we'll move right. on to oh, music. Absolutely. We are, we are a country of choices. That's true. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to love the harmonica. Well, I, my, my dad played harmonica extremely well and not often enough. Uh, he, had, uh, he had a couple squirreled away in his desk drawer that I would sneak out from time to time and, and honk around on. And a friend of his, uh, who is uh, another a uh, dear friend of his lived in my small hometown who they were both from that, you know, that World War II generation, uh, Big Mike. Uh, he was also a phenomenal player. You, you know, he would make it sound. They both played the traditional style um, of the diatonic harmonica, which was playing the melody out of one side of your mouth and cording the rhythm with your tongue out of the other side, which sounds difficult, but it's not really uh that um, that hard to to grasp the the uh, the idea, but uh, you know, I always love the sound of it. And I think you know, harmonica is one of those instruments that you either love or despise, depending on who's playing it. Uh, so when I became, uh, you know, I guess I was in my late teens, and I was at the music store at the mall and uh, I was looking at harmonicas and they were $6, I think for the first uh, Hoon or Marine band that I bought and, uh, and I could afford it. Uh, I didn't have any musical background. I wasn't able to take music lessons, a guitar or piano, anything when we were younger. So, uh, so I thought, well, I can afford this. I'm going to buy one and went home and started goofing around with it in my bedroom. And uh, you know, just never stopped. So are you totally self-taught? Uh, I, for the longest time, well, it wasn't that I didn't seek out help. I got help where it was available, but there just wasn't that many outlets for that. Unlike now where everything is at the, at your fingertips at a click of a button, you can get, you know, hundreds of free online instruction for virtually anything. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I was primarily figured it out on my own with a little bit of help from uh, my dad and, and more more so from uh, Big Mike, the family friend. And um, I was probably, 
I bet you I had been 20 years since I bought that first one before I actually went and studied with an accredited teachers and players. And uh, it immediately made a difference. And, uh, you know, you can't turn back time, as they say, but uh, boy, it sure, sure would and sure does shorten the learning curve when you find somebody who's already been there to help you um, navigate, you know, the, uh, the unknown. Yeah, well, I know you and I have talked a little bit about, you know, I'm always embarrassed to say when I'm in the presence of really good musicians that, hey, I've got a band, I've got a little band, you know, <laughs> but um, I had, I picked up harmonica when I was a kid too, and I had a little honer book, and I only had one harmonica and, and uh, you know, learned to play Dixie on it and whatever else I was working on, but I always after a while, it's such a great instrument because it's got that kind of old sound. It sounds like a calliope and an organ and, and, you know, all those great accordion. It's got all those kind of flavors to me and, and you can kind of change it up. And I love to play the thing, you know, and I think uh, harmonica is one of those things where there are so many skill levels that are still, if you meet a certain baseline, they're kind of acceptable. Like I always thought Bob Dylan was just kind of guy who just kind of inhaled and exhaled on the, on the right notes of the harmonica, but he wasn't, he didn't have a particular flair or, I mean, he had a technique, but it wasn't well-developed. And then I hear people like you just take notes and, and just make wonderful things happen with an instrument. Um, but there is a there is some trick to it, though. I mean, there's a lot of technique. And what I thought was super interesting about meeting you, I don't know if you remember, but we sat and talked about harmonica and we kind of concluded that playing harmonica is a lot the same. The techniques are a lot of the same as they are to good singing as far as breathing. Absolutely. Yeah, the approach is uh, quite similar. In fact, the first, uh, first time I was... Um, I contacted somebody to do some vocal coaching uh, for me, and uh, she was explaining some of the things she was going to go over before I got to uh, her, you know, the first session. And uh, and I kept kind of chuckling, and she finally said, "What's so funny?" And I I told her, you know, the things you're saying that you're going to go over with me for vocal coaching are identical to the things that I go over with beginner students or even, you know, even more advanced students on the harmonica when I, when I give lessons or workshops, because the, um, the parallels are, it's really amazing how, uh, how alike the approaches are for both, for both um, disciplines, harmonica playing and, and singing um, quite frankly, I think that's what makes the harmonica very special is that it's such a personal instrument and it's, it's so um, tied into not just your any individual's technique and what you may have learned, even on, on a physiological sense. Uh, how your body is built, the, the shape of your mouth cavity, how you move your tongue, the, you know, your breathing uh, habits and patterns. 
very much the same as a vocalist. You know, they they all sound different for a reason because every uh, every one of us uh, are built differently on the physiological sense when it comes to speaking and especially singing. So that's so interesting. And it was revelatory to me because I never thought about it, but I've been playing harmonica and singing for a long time. And it wasn't until we talked that I'm like, oh yeah, it's the same flow <laughs> of air in and out. It's just what you do right. with it when you have it. That's right. Light bulb moment. So can you, can you tell the difference? And maybe you can talk about some of your favorite harmonica players. If they had the same Honer Marine harmonica or professional level harmonica, if two people played the same song, could you tell them apart by their, by the way they, they produce sound? Uh, sometimes depends on the player. Uh, you know, there are well-known players that have, um, a very recognizable style. Uh, you know, I mean, their sound, like I said, just based on the way their body is constructed, their sound is going to be unique. And then their own uh, stylistic approach, uh, it kind of, not a whole lot different from a guitar player. I mean, if you turn on the radio, a blues radio station and a B.B. King song is playing, you know right away who's playing that guitar. I mean, it's, it's just stylistically Certain musicians have their own um, their own sound, and it's no different with harmonica. Maybe even you know even more so with the harmonica because because of the physiological change, uh, differences from player to player. Um, but yeah, I mean, I could hear you know certain players, and I I could tell who it is by the tonal differences and the stylistic differences. Um, now, to be sure. There are a lot of players who um, emulated or were influenced by and continue to emulate some of the classic players who came before them. But that goes back, you know, all the way back to the beginning. I mean, it's like art is always influenced by something or someone. So, um, you know, I know there are little bits and pieces of all these players that I've listened to and admired that have um, come together to form um, my approach to playing. Right. So who are those players? Well, you know, when you get into the, uh, you know, to like the class, when I say classic blues, I'm talking about, you know, like the golden era of uh, chess records in Chicago. Uh, some of those players, when they first started really, you know, getting more studio time uh, and having their own approach. Uh, of course, everybody, points to little Walter. Um, and, uh, you know, I by no means ever implied, nor will I ever that I would, you know, can play like little Walter, because quite frankly, there was only one and only one can, but certainly his approach, uh, to the harmonica has been an influence on, on me and just about every other blues harmonica player, uh, that's come along after. Um, one of my favorites was, uh, Sonny Boy Williamson. Uh, the second one, Rice Miller, there are actually two of them, um, but he he had a very unique uh, approach to it. Um, the first Sonny Boy Williamson, John Lee Williamson, was uh, a huge influence on so many other of those early players, uh, including Little Walter. And you listen to Little Walter's early stuff, his acoustic stuff, it, it he's 
playing John Lee Williamson licks. Um, you know, so it's like everybody comes up with something and based on what they've heard and learned and other people draw from those wells to kind of uh, make their own sounds. You know, plus the other, you know, those other guys, they were listening to, I know uh, a lot of them listened to jazz players and the horn, specifically the horn players and, uh, you know, how they approach phrasing and things like that. So um, as far as uh, to get back to your question, yeah, I mean, you know, Little Walter Jacobs, Big Walter Horton, um, both Sonny Boy Williamson's, you know, coming out of the blues, out of that blues realm. I mean, those guys um, are some of my favorite to listen to. And even listening to recordings that I've listened to dozens of times, I'm still uh, um, mesmerized sometimes by the little subtle things that I hear within it that I might not have noticed before. So, yeah, I, I love all that stuff. Also love like the traditional approach, uh, which is what I started with. Um, when you, um, you think of the diatonic harmonica, you, you had mentioned that, yeah, it's, it's easy to pick out some rudimentary stuff. Uh, it's built that way on purpose. So there are a lot of safe notes. Uh, there are actually two chords uh, built into the harmonica uh, on a labeled uh, labeled uh, key of the harmonica, say uh, an A harmonica, for example. It has the one chord, which is an A, just about anywhere you blow. And it has the five chord or an E chord down on the bottom end when you draw. So, you know, those were pretty predominant chords. And, and a lot of people who have come out of the blues, country, rock world don't think too much about this. But when you think about where and when this instrument was initially developed, which was in Europe, specifically Germany, in the um, 19th century, you think about what kind of music they were listening to and playing at the time. It wasn't blues and rock and roll and country, that's for sure. Right. It was umpa, it was umpa music. Right. So, so And that, that calliope I mean, accordion exactly, stuff, yeah. you know? Yes, I use that comparison all the time, that antique calliope on the old merry-go-round. And my dad and his friend Big Mike, that's exactly what they sounded like. And, uh, you know, that's why those chords are there, because those were the dominant chords of that kind of music. And you can play the melody out of the right side of your mouth and then manipulate the chords with your tongue on the left side of your mouth and get that kind of uh, that traditional approach. All the bending and the blues and the rock, those were all happy accidents, I believe, that came uh, much later. It's pretty exciting when you think about it. Um, Maybe you can explain this to me because this is an actual conversation I have with my my the members of my alt bluegrass band. We play rootsy stuff, but um, mm -hmm. so I play harmonica and I'm. They asked me, they're like Kelly, why do you say cross harp? And I'm like, well, I'm playing I'm playing the other set of chords that's available. And I said, here's the difference in sound, but I couldn't explain cross harp to them because I don't have the I don't have the musical term terminology in my head for what I'm playing. And they're both astute 
study students of music, like, a, you know, my bass player is a music educator, but I couldn't explain it except to play it. So what is it? What's just define that cross harp? Well, cross harp is just, I mean, having musical knowledge, um, you know, you're a trained musician, which I am not, not even close. Um, there is a specific set of uh, terminology and vernacular that goes along with anything, and music is certainly one of them. Harmonica has its own set of uh, terminology and vernacular. So cross harp, as opposed to straight harp. So I mentioned that the harmonica you get has a label, a key label on it. So they come in various keys. When you're playing in that key, uh, that would be considered straight harp, or as some people call it, first position. And what that is, is you, like any instrument, whatever key you're uh, going to play in, you are running your scales between the root notes of that particular key. And that, you know, gives you the notes that are available naturally uh, on the harmonica versus the ones that you have to manipulate through bending to get. So when you go to cross harp or second position, um, it, those root note locations change. So then you have, so instead of the root note being in straight harp, the root note being one, four, seven, and 10, if you're gonna do cross harp, it would be on three and six and nine blow or the two draw. And, um, and then you would run in between those as your root note. Um, and you, know, you can take that several steps further and play uh, several keys or positions on any given diatonic harmonica. And, uh, you know, usually most, a lot of people just refer to them as first position, second position, third, fourth, fifth, twelfth, wh whichever one they're playing. Uh, but, you know, the, the most common ones, first position, straight harp, second position, cross harp, third position, there are people who have uh, referred to that as double cross, um, um, twelfth position, uh, first flat you know, and so on and so forth. So it's really, it's about the vernacular, but it boils down to when you're explaining to a non-harmonica player or a harmonica player who wants to know more, it, it's based on where the root notes are and, um, and what you do in between those root notes. Okay, thank you for that. I'm so fascinated. I hope someone else is besides you and me <laughs> and my band because we have listeners to, get, to think about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully I'm not boring everybody. No, you're not boring at all because this is all, this is all stuff that I live with. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just woefully un, under-trained in music, but I just, we like to do it. So we just do it, but I think that's what it's about. So I just want to tell you, I think the first time I really got a, an upfront feel for the power that you could exude with a harmonica. I went to see the fabulous Thunderbirds and I kind of got drugged there. I didn't want to go, but right. Kim Wilson on the harmonica kind of blew me away. And I think my jaw dropped and I think I had to shovel it off the floor and I'm just like, Oh, wow. that's what you can do. I just didn't know. Yeah. That's not an uncom uncommon reaction to uh, Kim Wilson's playing. He is, <laughs> Uh, arguably the best 
alive right now in playing that traditional Chicago style blues. He's, he's, he's a freak of nature. Like I can only yeah. imagine <laughs> like when the doctor listens to his lungs, the, the lungs must be speaking English to the doctor. <laughs> We're fine in here. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, you know, when, when Muddy Waters makes the comment that Kim Wilson is the best harmonica player he's ever played with or heard since little Walter, that's pretty heavy stuff. And he made that comment. Well, he died in 83. He made that comment a long time ago. And, and I know, and how dopey was I that I, you know, I kind of got drugged to that show. I'm like, eh, all right. I, you know, and then I'm like, okay, but those are the best kind of shows. Like that's the musical surprise. And that's the whole Shazam behind it. I think. Right, the magic of music. So you have a relatively new album out that I have been thoroughly enjoying, by the way. Do you want to talk a little okay. bit about? Oh, I'd love to, yeah. It uh, just came out in uh, late May, I believe it was, of this year. Um, it was a, a long process, not because it was difficult, but because I kind of took my time on it and... Um, so uh, Charlie Barath, just me and my friends, has 17 tracks, which is kind of crazy for a CD these days, and uh, 16 of those originals. What I wanted to do was to um, kind of highlight the different approaches I take to performing and songwriting. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm primarily known as a blues guy. But uh, I also have a lot of other influences, you know, growing up right across the river from Wheeling, West Virginia. I heard a lot of old country music back then. And, uh, you know, and my parents being from the greatest generation, big band, all that stuff, which it it seeped in. I didn't really care for it then. But, you know, those seeds sprouted. And uh, and I love listening to that stuff now. And it certainly has uh, influenced my writing. But not funny? only did I want to, I'm sorry? Isn't it funny? The older you get, the older the music you tend to like is, at least I find. <laughs> That's been the case with me for sure. Yeah. Um, not only did I want to highlight my songs um, and my writing as diverse as it, as it is, but I also wanted to uh, shine a spotlight on some of the fantastic musicians that I get to, to gig with and play with on a fairly regular basis. So there are um, 19 other musicians uh, involved in this project. Yeah, which is exciting. Um, All phenomenal, by the way. Yeah, they are. And the album, I mean, it's so thoughtful. And I described it to you earlier as, as a mix of like old juke joint vibes mixed with sitting in front of 70s television and you laughed and told me I was ridiculous and no that's not what you said <laughs> but you did say it's interesting how people how people perceive this so how do you perceive this album um you know again it was it was more I just kind of wanted to use it as a showcase uh but as it as a the process went on and I would get, you know, some folks from out of town 
in and I'd be able to schedule some studio and we would do like uh, the session that did like the amplified blues uh, tracks. And then I'd get another group of people together and get them in the studio and do the full full on country band tracks. And then I'd have somebody, there's a couple duo, a uh, couple incredible guitar players that I get to play with that, uh, you know, we do some short tours here and there. And when I would have either of them in town, you know, we'd go in and, and do those, um, do those duo tracks. And then I, you know, of course, like everything in a studio, you add a little, little things after the fact. Um, and, you know, as far as my thought process and approach, I just wanted, again, I wanted to highlight my diversity as a writer and, and player and singer, and also wanted to highlight these fantastic musicians. And, uh, and that's what I did. And when I laid out the track order, um, you know, I was just trying to keep it as uh, interesting as possible, but it wound up having a, a, a pretty good flow from beginning to end. It really did. And, uh, you know, it's just such a great recording. And I hope everybody looks this up. Charlie Brath, just me and my friends. And I'm going to play a little bit. I asked you to identify three songs by what I think criteria I think are interesting. The one you love the most, the one that you didn't think was going to make it to the album because of whatever reason was difficult to produce. And then maybe the one that surprised you the most in the way it turned out. So we're going to start with the one you love the most, which is uh, losing my mind over you. And this just made me laugh out loud in the first two seconds of the song, but, and you'll figure out why in a second. Here we go. <laughs> I know, right? All right, here we go. I had a tail that I can chase It makes me wanna yabba-dabba-doo Cause I'm losing my mind over you Well, I'm losing my mind over you Half crazy about everything you do Sounds funny but I'm hoping you'll cuckoo for me too Losing my mind over you oh, Come on, son I, I love the whole references because this was like I was, I'm a child of the 70s and this just put me right back there with the old country that my dad listened to in his pickup truck and Woody Woodpecker who nobody, you know, who isn't really in the current uh scene right now but he'll i'm sure he'll be back and then a little fred flintstone in there so do you want to talk about this <laughs> well the the re this this song uh you know we had talked about different uh approaches to songwriting some of uh some of my favorite songs that i've written 
came to me while I was busy doing something else. And there's, there's something going along, going on in your brain that when you're occupied doing something, it frees up the creative side of your brain to, to really go somewhere else that maybe if you were sitting down trying to force it wouldn't happen. Um, but I wrote this song while I was at work one day, I was working, uh, in a cabinet shop. I'm a carpenter by trade. And I was working in a cabinet shop years ago. And, and I started thinking about, you know, the different, uh, euphemisms we use when we talk about, you know, um, like being in love with someone. And, uh, and I, like, I noticed that there were a lot of them that had, that were kind of like, uh, you know, uh, mental health ramifications or connections, if you will. <laughs> so, so that was kind of like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to see if I can make, you know, create this song and use all these, use as many of these different euphemisms as I can to, you know, kind of at the, the singer of the song expressing his affection for his or her loved one. And, uh, and of course, the, the intro and the outro being the little little uh, uh, shout out to Woody Woodpecker. I mean, I'm also I'm also coming from the same time as you, Kelly, and and the biggest knucklehead that comes to mind is Woody the Woodpecker. It's so good. So yeah, I thought it would be nice to, to give him a little homage at the beginning and ending of this song. But uh, yeah, that was sort of that was sort of my approach. No, I love it. And I think, you know, it's such an interesting way to write a song is kind of using those, I don't want to call them cliches, but those commonalities that are just out there that, that they're really universal and everybody, I think people relate a lot to this. Now, have yeah, you played absolutely. this live for in front of an audience? Oh, many times. Yeah. The, the Millbillies uh, were, rec were uh, re performing this song and several of the others for uh, quite a while before I got them into the studio. So yeah, it always gets, uh, it, you know, it's one of those songs and there's nothing like the feeling of, of this happening as a songwriter when you're performing and before the song's half over, you're watching people singing along with it and uh, it's got a real, it's really kind of hooky. Uh, but, you know, you and you know, these people have never been to your show, have never heard this song and they're singing along. It's the, it's pretty heady stuff, but uh, always got a great response. Yeah. Is that, that's kind of how you know you're onto something, isn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I always ask that. How do people, cause I never know when I'm writing, like, how are people going to react? Do they think this is good? I'll sometimes I'll play it for my husband, Dave and you know, he he says he likes everything I do, whether he does or not. He might just be wifing me, you know, I don't know. But, you know, I always tell him, I'm like, okay, were you humming this 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 riff at any point since I played you this song? And he just, he looks at me like I, he's in trouble and he goes, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think I need a better audience, quite frankly. I need well, strangers. I, mean, I need strangers. They're honest. Right. Well, yeah, I was just going to say that, that, you know, when your friends and family are almost always, you know, I do have some, thankfully, and I appreciate them. I have some friends who are like brutally honest 
and we'll we'll never say they like something if they don't just to make me feel good. And uh, those are the people that I when I have something new, I usually run it by them first. Um, but you know, when you get it out in front of people who don't know you and strangers, and you, then you start getting you know those that kind of feedback, that's where it's that's it, really um, you know unencumbered by a relationship that you may have with that person. Yeah, that's good. So shall we move on or is there anything you want to add about this song before we hit your, um, the, the song that you weren't sure was going to make it? Uh, well, I mean, I just, um, losing my mind is, it's, if I had to pick favorites, you know, there's a, you know, a short list, although I love all the songs on this record, but, uh, that one, that was actually the first single that I released, uh, prior to the album dropping. And, uh, you know, it just, I, I always love that Western swing vibe. It's kind of got that asleep at the wheel kind of thing going on. Um, initially, I was going to have uh, a fiddle featured on this tune. And when uh, my friend Pete Freeman, the pedal, the fantastic pedal steel player came into the studio, um, he, he was setting up and, uh, the engineer Al Torrance at Music Garden Studio was playing another swing song on this record. And uh, Pete said, this is the kind of stuff you should have me on, Charlie. And uh, so I had Al cue uh, up Losing My Mind and, uh, and I gave Pete a run at it. And immediately the thoughts of having anything other than pedal steel went out of my head. And I just, you know, I told him this song is yours. He doesn't even have a solo on it. It's, it's, uh, it's just all him threading his wonderful playing in and out of the song and it because it's it so really intentional takes... it sounds uh, that's so surprising that it was a uh uh somebody else's help on that it's funny yeah I, you know and it was uh I, I don't know he just owned the song and it really took what i think's a pretty darn good song and and kicked it up several levels and uh you know when, when i had pete in the studio he was actually set up playing in the control room and his amplifier was out in the studio, but my jaw was getting sore from grinning because everything he was doing was just, he was just owning everything he played and uh, played on. And, Magic uh, yeah, moments. That, yeah, that's it. You know, unintentional, like, Hey, take a run at this. And it was, it was fantastic. Okay. So when you first shot me your, your second take for what we were going to talk about today. I was thrilled at the title for this highball and a covered dish. And <laughs> here's the reason why when I was little in churches, we would always have what they would call covered dish socials where everybody would bring a covered dish. And, you know, there's nothing better than church comfort food. Amen. And the thought of this with the highball just made me laugh. So tell me about this song and then we're going to play it. Uh, this, uh, this is one that, um, you know, I wasn't initially going to put it on this record. Uh, I wrote this song. It's actually about my mother. Um, now my, uh, my father's family emigrated here from Hungary uh, when my grandparents were young adults and my mother's family my grandpa came here 
uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Um, and then my mother was born here. So I was, I'm, I'm second generation on both sides. Uh, but <laughs> grew up with, I mean, you talk about comfort food. Uh, you know, of course, my mother being Polish, you know, all that great Polish cooking and culture and music. And then when she and you mentioned Kilbasi in the song, which surprised me because it's the only song that has ever mentioned Kilbasi <laughs> and pierogies and haluski and haluki. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but when my mother told me that when she got married to my dad, who was the first, the oldest of four children. Uh, his mom grabbed her and said, if you're going to cook for my baby, you're going to learn all his favorite meals. So, <laughs> so we grew up eating. I mean, with everyone, I mean, we did the steak and potatoes thing once in a while, but it was, it was, you know, the majority of what we had for dinner every night was, uh, was some sort of comfort food with a, uh, with an, uh, Eastern European ethnic approach. And, uh, and also what went along with that was the, was that um, approach to work ethic and family ties and being true to whatever group you belong to. And uh, so, yeah, literally everything in that song, I lived, um, you know, growing up. And, uh, you know, my, my mother wasn't a drinker, but, you know, she was known to have an occasional highball at a wedding reception or some sort of a, you know, funeral luncheon. Um, but she always had... <laughs> You know, it was always the covered dish uh, going to any of those events, church socials or, you know, wakes and receptions. That was like, that was it. And uh, so when I started performing this song, I noticed when I was in certain areas uh, where that ethnic influence was and remains very strong, uh, people really responded to that song and they would request it even more than once in any given evening. And uh, so I thought, you know, I was looking for a vehicle to include another couple of friends. And, uh, and I thought, well, you know, this song is popular. It might not play in every market, but the ones that it does go over well, um, it, you know, it's going to go over quite well. And, uh, uh, and I'm getting, I'm getting that exact feedback from it. <laughs> see, I don't, I think that everybody has a covered dish story. Like the one I just told you, it's a little different from yours, but you know, sure. Like everybody has been to those dinners and that I think it's great. So let's play a little yeah, bit. I mean, there's, there are some common threads that go through all cultures um, and that, you know, I, which, you know, leads, leads me to my thought is that uh, as humans across the globe, we have more in common than we don't. And, uh, and this kind of thing, this uh, togetherness and uh, you know, having your culture, your societal culture and your, and your specific foods and music and all those things, um, you know, they may vary from one culture to the next, but the, um, just those notions are a common thread that goes across the globe. Amazing. All right. Well, let's listen to a little bit of highball in a covered dish.
Swedish girl Down Belmont County Way It's just so fun and it's so not Polish traditional music. It's really old. Like I keep thinking, like when I first heard it, I'm like, I am in New Orleans. It is 19 whatever and <laughs> just transported. And then we started talking about comfort food. So hello. Right. That that uh, actually the, the song structure and the melody was fairly borrowed from a Muddy Waters song. Uh, so it came out of the uh, Chess Records uh, Chicago yeah. blues tradition. Um, but he has a song called uh, um, Deep Down in Florida that it's uh, that's kind of an homage to that that tune and that style. And it and it really just laid out well. And, uh, you know, when I had when I had the musicians in the studio and I told Al, the engineer, what I had in mind for this song and and he was just like, that's that's not going to work. You can't have everybody playing at once like that. And, <laughs> and uh, when we got done, he said, you know, I didn't think it was going to, but by golly, it, it works pretty well. <laughs> I love how collaborative you are in, in the studio and just telling these stories about your ideas and taking other people's ideas. I think that's, that's uh, I think that's, pretty awesome. And I can imagine that it doesn't happen all the time. Well, I, I've always felt that you could learn something from anyone and maybe how not to do it, but if <laughs> you're open-minded, if you're open-minded, you never know what's going to drop in your lap. And I could give you a, a handful of stories about going into the studio with one thing in my head and winding up with something different because of somebody made a suggestion or they played something at random and I liked the sound of it, or, you know, we had something on hand and said, well, let's give that a try. I mean, that's really, that's really what makes the creative process creative is being open. Now, you know, if I had something in mind and, and really wanted it to sound like that and wouldn't um, listen to anyone else's input, this record wouldn't have turned out like it, like it did. Right. Amazing. Um, so why didn't you think this song was was going to make it to the album? Well, again, I, I, initially I was thinking 14 or 15 tracks, which is still kind of a high number. Super days. generous, Most, by the way. 
Yes. Well, yeah, that's what I think. Um, <laughs> you know, these days, a lot of people aren't even doing CDs, physical copies. They're doing the, you know, the common thing is, uh, you know, release a digital track every couple months so they have a steady flow of content and, you know, try to build that way. Um, but, you know, I like the idea of, of having a product. I'm, again, I'm a 20th century guy. I like something tangible in my hand and uh, like reading liner notes and looking at photos. And, uh, and, uh, and most of the people, the vast majority that I, at least now, uh, that are going to want to listen to my music are you know, of the same you know, generation or, or age group, you know, 50 and up, whatever. Um, so they too like having that tangible item in their hand. So that's why I went with a, an album and the CD, physical copy. And, uh, you know, when I was thinking 14, 15 tracks, you know, Al, the engineer was like, well, that's, you know, that's a lot. Most people are 10, maybe 12. Uh, but as I went along, there were songs, not only songs that I wanted to include, but again, a big part of this was highlighting these musicians that I get to play with. So I, I needed a couple of vehicles to include a few, a few of my uh, fellow musicians on this project. And that was one of them. And I thought, well, you know, it's, it's a popular song when I play it out in particular markets, I might as well put it on there. Then I could get this guy, that guy, and that guy in the studio and have them be a part of this as well. And it sounds like fun, a good way to uh, get together with your old friends, huh? Oh, uh, we had a, uh, the process was, was so, so great and fulfilling for me, uh, getting to play with all these people and, and co-producing this with, with Al Torrance. I mean, he, he is so talented and he's got such a great ear, uh, but he was so wonderful to work with because, you know, he had in mind what he thought it would, where things should go. And I had in mind where I thought things would go. And, um, and we were both very uh, open to suggestion and direction. And, uh, and this is the result. So how did you find Al or did you just always want to work with him? Uh, well, Al was, um, Al bought a local studio. There was, oh, I'll back up a little bit. There's a local studio in New Brighton. Pennsylvania called Jerry's Records, or Jerry Records. It was there for decades and they recorded anyone and everyone who was anywhere in this region, you know, between, you know, Columbus and Pittsburgh and, you know, the surrounding several states. And he also recorded, uh, there were some actual big radio hits covered there, like, uh, uh, Donnie Iris, who's a local guy from Western PA, uh, I think he did Aliyah there, if I'm not mistaken, and I could be, but I'm pretty sure that came out of there. Uh, Wild Cherry played that funky music. I believe that came out of there. Um, so this studio is, you know, regionally famous in, uh, you know, rightfully so. Well, uh, the previous owner, um, Don Garvin, who is a friend of mine and, um, as a fantastic technician, I take my amplifiers and have him work on them um, and actually um, hire him for gigs once in a while. He's a great guitar player, but he was kicking around the idea of, of maybe selling the studio and Al Torrance, who had gone to school to learn this craft, approached him about just that. And, uh, and Don agreed and sold it. Al 
remodeled some stuff. Still has a lot of the old equipment, the original board that Don built and, uh, and kind of made some tweaks and started turning out some pretty amazing stuff from that studio. And he's got, again, he's, he's a very skilled engineer. Uh, so, um, I had one, I had entered a, the local blues challenge and part of the first prize was, um, some studio time. And, uh, and I went into the studio and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And uh, initially I was going to do some duo stuff with my friend, Chris Sutton, who's also on the record. And, uh, you know, Chris kind of got it, got away from music for a while. Uh, so I took it and, uh, you know, decided this is what I was going to do with it. And it was a long process. It was probably three years from the recording of the first track to the ultimate release. Wow. I think, uh, I think it's amazing how, uh, I don't know, there's something about music. It just gets you, it's always six degrees of separation, I think is what I'm trying to say. Like you're never that far from somebody who's just remarkable, even if you're sitting in the audience, you know, I mean, there are just so many ways that it's just such a perfect creative storm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And music is truly a, a business of relationships and, you know, you know, people who aren't open to networking and meeting other people and working with other people are really slamming doors in their own faces. And, yeah. uh, you know, and it's these chance meetings that I've had with some of the, in some cases, very random meetings with these people who, um, you know, I've gone on to have great musical relationships as well as friendships with. Yeah, it's amazing. Hey, so I want to give um, the time that's due to Ohio because I'm pretty sure this is this is one of my favorites on the album, although she drives me to drink and then she won't drive me home is also fantastic. <laughs> but I heard you yeah. at, at Smoke Country Jam play that and I was just like, oh, that's fun. So anyway, Another one I wrote while I was working. Right. <laughs> All right. So let's let do you want to do you want to queue up Ohio for us? You said this was a surprise that um, this surprised you most in recording. So tell me a little bit about that. Uh, so Ohio. Um, speaking of uh, the creative process, um, I had ordered some harmonicas from Honer. I'm a, a Honer uh, endorser, by the way. Did I forget and, to say um, that? I'm so sorry, Honer. Honer, oh, forgive me. Right. I do and love I you. Need, I, I need to give I need to give uh, those guys a shout out because they've been uh, no pun intended so instrumental in uh, <laughs> you know my my journey. But, they should make, um, they should put that on a mug. Instrumental to your uh, journey, right? Uh, so I ordered the you know they in addition to the typical major tune diatonic harmonicas. They're also alternate tunings. And uh, one of which is this uh, natural minor tune. And um, the idea is in the natural minor tuning is to be able to play in the cross harp or second position, uh, but have those minor note, minor scale there more naturally. But what I did on with some of my uh, music, I take that minor tuned harp and I play it in, first position or straight harp and so i got this uh 
this minor tune harmonica and I was goofing around with it. And I, this melodic phrase came out and it's like, and I really was drawn to it. And, uh, and it just had this old timey feel. And, uh, I had mentioned to you earlier, I'm a little bit of a history nerd, especially when it comes to, uh, my local area, which is the upper Ohio Valley where I've lived all my life. Uh, there's a lot of like rich history and, and not all of it pretty, um, as most history isn't, but you know, I just, I had in mind to write this kind of historical piece about, uh, this, uh, young man who leaves the settled East, leaves his family and, and has heard of this fabled land of Ohio with all this game and, fertile land and riches and wants to be one of the first ones to get there this would have taken place in the 18th century uh but the uh indigenous people of america who were there uh weren't quite ready to uh welcome the europeans uh with open arms and uh so this basically is a story of of him making his way to ohio and uh things not working out quite as well as he hoped all right, let's give it a listen and then we'll talk about its place in the album. Here we go. Springsteen-y to me, but then other times you're singing and I get a little Sinatra vibes from you. It's interesting. You kind of chameleon-y. Um, well, I mean, if you're going to sing different types of music stylistically, 
I mean, let's face it, a, you know, blues shouter is not going to work for a crooning song and a, you know, uh, a high pitched nasally bluegrass singer isn't going to work on a, uh, on a torchy song. I mean, it's just, it's really my approach vocally to any given song has got to be the same as my approach playing the harmonica. Um, you know, I love playing that overdriven, amplified uh, Chicago blues style harmonica, but that's sure not going to work on a, on a country song or a, a swing song. And uh, the single note melodic stuff doesn't always work in a, you know, in a gritty sounding tune. So yeah, that's uh, my, my approach is very much the same um, with everything I do. And uh, it all goes back to the number one rule that I think all musicians should have burned into their brain, which is serve the song. Yeah. Love it. And sometimes I'm guessing that is that sort of a natural thing? I mean, I'm sure you don't sit up at night going, hmm, a little less this and a little more this. I mean, I think when you serve the song, I sort of feel like it's like role play. You know what I mean? You're that guy. Yeah. Yeah. You're not wrong there. Not at all. Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, I, I've, I've heard people say that, you know, if you're doing a lot of different things, you should pick the thing you love most and be the best at it you can. And that's one thing I could do. The problem is, you know, I love all this old traditional music. And, um, and I don't know if I had to make that choice, I don't know which, which direction it would be. Um, you know, I, that being said with that kind of diversity, like everything, uh, everything does require a, a, a separate approach. Um, do I lie awake in bed? Yeah, probably sometimes I do, you know, thinking <laughs> about, I, I know when I was doing this record and we were, you know, putting finishing touches on it. Yeah. I mean, I literally would wake up in the middle of the night and, uh, and lay there thinking about, you know, and get these ideas like, well, maybe instead of that, I should add this. And, you know, when I'd go back into the studio, look at making that change didn't always work, but yeah, it was, uh, it was very much in the thought process. Yeah. So why was this song your biggest surprise of the album? Um, I don't even know if it was the biggest, but it certainly is uh, a surprise because, you know, style, again, stylistically, it's the only old timey piece on the whole record. Um, it, um, it's got a, a really its own separate feel, both uh, musically and thematically, um, and it it turned out kind of the way I was hoping. You know, when we tracked the song initially with with uh, myself and uh, Sam Stuckey on guitar and Jeff Scheller on upright bass, and then um, you know which is how we did it in the Millbillies because there was just the three of us. But, you know, I told Al I wanted to bring in some more instrumentation to kind of give it like the feel like a traditional old time string band. And uh, yeah. so I, you know, brought in uh, is actually uh, Pete Freeman, the pedal steel player who did the dobro work on it. 
and then uh, Ray Bruckman was nice enough to come in the studio. If you don't know Ray, he's from he's in the uh, Jacobs Ferry Stragglers, a vastly talented guy. He is a vastly uh, talented guy. That's oh, a vastly yeah. talented band. Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, but he came in. He did the uh, the fiddle and the mandolin. Uh, interesting side note: when uh, when he was doing this his part to this track, he came into the uh, control room at one point, and he mentioned that this song caught his attention when I sent him the the uh, the demo tracks because apparently his family has been living in Western PA since, well, since before the country was a, officially a country. And uh, wow. so he had a relative of his, one of his, I don't know, great, 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 great grandfather, whatever it would be, who was actually captured by the Native Americans and met a similar gruesome fate. Um, so it kind of connected with him on a very personal level. I feel like this is my favorite song on the album because it really hits the kind of music that I listen to. And it's just such a, it's such a great recording and it's a great song and a good, and I love story songs, but I don't know that it's fully my favorite of this album, but I think it is. So that's just my saying that I love the rest of the album too. And everybody should go out and get it. Um, um, I sure appreciate, I sure appreciate it, Kelly. And I, I go back and forth with which one's, which ones I, you know, love on any given day. I mean, some just turned out uh, exactly the way I had heard them in my head. Um, you know, the so the middle solo section and heart of mine, you know, with the uh, one instrument playing the melody line and then the other one responding and then taking turns doing that in each section. That's exactly how I had envisioned it. Uh, wasn't sure I'd be able to make it happen, but did, um, you know, Briar Hopper was a uh, is, is an instrumental, one of the two instrumentals that uh, everything was done. None of us on that song were in the studio together. The guitar, the harmonica, the tuba were all recorded in three separate places. Oh, my gosh. We love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> uh, yeah. That was another one I wasn't sure it was going to, it was very much on the bubble, whether or not it would get added to the final product and, and, um, you know, to Al's credit and to, um, Roger Day on a tuba and Chris Sutton on the slide guitar. Uh, and they were able to, to give me something that, you know, really worked perfectly. And, uh, yeah, I get, I get, I get a lot of feedback. It's funny. I get, I get great feedback on songs that, I, I might not have put on this record otherwise. So that, that always feels good. It's because you were generous and gave us 17 songs, which is generous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, it's funny, I, not to backtrack too much, but um, while we were taking the musical break, I was looking at uh, a notification on my phone and I had gotten a message from um, a DJ in Maine. It's getting some airplay, this record around the country. And there was a DJ up in Maine uh, who had just posted his um, playlist for this week's uh, song for his radio show. And the song he was playing was Highball and Covered Dish. Yes. <laughs> I have a Polish grandmother, too. Well, I had. She's no longer with us, but 
She she knew a thing or two. Oh yeah. About covered dishes. <laughs> oh man. Anyway, yeah. I want to take a minute and talk about our um, creative toolkit, which I like to ask my artists who come um, on the show to give me three rules or three tools or three things that have kind of helped guide them musically through either the music business or creativity in general. Okay. Um, hmm. I think you already said one. Well, I mean, serving the song, I mean, that's, that should be, that should be performance 101. Um, Amen. You know, when you sit, when everybody serves the song, the song wins, the performers win, the audience wins, everybody wins. Uh, the opposite side of that approach to playing music is the look at me approach. And uh, while I am the first to say that using, uh, you know, a little gimmickry and some uh, shtick and some visual uh, tricks to keep people engaged while you're playing is certainly important. But um, if, if your whole approach to music is look at me instead of serving the song, then, then it's a much tougher road to make those connections with people and, uh, and the music. So yeah, serve the song number one, when you're performing, uh, on the creative end, uh, you know, don't ever look past any potential, um, well that you can dip out of, um, music inspiration, artistic inspiration, it can come from anywhere. As I mentioned, you can learn something from anyone. It might be how not to, to do something, um, but you can learn from, you know, from that. Uh, uh, one thing that I got in the habit of doing a long time ago was if I have, whether it's a, a lyrical phrase or a musical line, if I'm, you know, fooling around on my harmonica or driving down the road playing whatever, and if something jumps out at me, or even just in my head, if I if it's a melodical a melodic phrase or something like that, and I, I like the sound of it, I'll pull out my device and I'll record it and save it. And um, you know, there are songs that sat in my phone or in my computer, snippets or ideas or concepts that have sat there for quite a long time. And then every once in a while, I go back and revisit that stuff, and uh, you know, and it develops into uh, you know a full piece that can at some point be released on a cd or digitally uh, so recording yourself so so important because you know I, I can't speak for everyone but my my brain has a limited capacity as far as how much i can retain and uh as as good as something sounds if i don't write it down or record it um it's easily lost so, <laughs> so great that, advice that's something that i can't um, stress enough um i guess the other thing is just always be open to uh to inspiration you know i mean it i, I don't know if you could say that there are any really truly unique things happening or have happened 
people take a unique spin on different things, but art begets art, um, especially music, but any art. But you think about it, everything musical has been inspired by something else. You know, it just, it's just what are those sources and where do they come from and what does that creative person do with them? So um, obviously you don't want to directly rip somebody off. That's not good. But if you're inspired by someone's approach, whether it's, you know, what they're doing vocally or how they're approaching their instrument or how they're putting their band together, um, you can do that. There are some people who've made, um, you know, a, a pretty good living, you know, uh, copying somebody else's formula. Or, you know, a big thing now is the tribute bands. You know, to me, I love the creative process. So, you know, looking at uh, and being open to these uh, other influences and not just from what you're trying to do. So if you're, a, you know, if you're a, a, a blues person and you're trying to, uh, you want to you wanna sound a certain way, you know, you can do that. But man, oh man, don't, don't block off every other type of music because as I mentioned earlier, a lot of those early great harmonica players like Little Walter, they listened to people like uh, Lester Young and Louis Jordan playing saxophone in those big band uh, situations. And, and that's where they got a lot of their ideas as far as, um, you know, musical themes. And it really, then they combined that with the situation they were in to create what was kind of groundbreaking at the time. So yeah, just being open to all those, uh, all those potential um, veins of wealth when it comes to inspiration. Awesome. Good lessons, good music. Um, your album, Just Me and My Friends, is available on Bandcamp? Yes, downloads are available at uh, charliebarath.bandcamp.com. Um, if you want a hard copy CD, now my, my website, which I am dragging my feet on, is uh, still in the process of being built. So it's uh, literally just a landing page. That would be charliebarathharmonica.com. I hope to have it up before too awful long. Uh, but you can send me a message at charliebarath at gmail.com. That's Charlie with an I-E and Barath, B-A-R-A-T-H. Um, or you can uh, find Charlie Barath Harmonica on Facebook. That's my music page. Send me a message there. Certainly if we're friends on social media, reach out to me. Uh, and I believe this new record is streaming on all the major platforms. So if you just wanted to give it a listen or stream, um, you can go to Spotify, iTunes, whatever your platform of choice is. Yeah, but listen, and, uh, then buy it. I'm just saying. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. Or at least put it on and let it stream all day or all week and get those numbers up. And, uh, and certainly if you are an influencer and have a playlist and, uh, you I mean, there's a lot of, uh, a variety as far as stylistically. So this would appeal to a lot of different people. But if you have a playlist on Spotify or iTunes and uh, you know, feel free to include 
this music on those playlists because that all that all helps in growing a brand and, and getting the word out there. Uh, there's, you know, countless indie artists out there now, but uh, the easy way to get your music out, but it's a pretty vast and deep pool to uh, sift through. So um, yeah, little bumps like that go a long way. Um, I also am available for, um, studio work, lessons, um, touring, you know, I make myself available for all of that. Awesome. 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 Charlie, I can't thank you enough for, for doing this. You were one of my favorite finds at, uh, the festival this year at Smoke Country Jam. And I'm so glad that we had this time to talk. Oh my gosh. I can't agree more, Kelly. This was, uh, um, this time flew by and, uh, yes, I, um, had a great time. I really appreciate what you're doing. Well, thank you. And I just want to thank, uh, Juxtahub and that is Emmaus's arts and innovation center. Without them, this podcast would not be possible. And I know that they are ramping up and pretty soon everybody will be able to go in the, into the doors there, not just me. So look forward to that and thanks. And we'll see you next time on the creative backstory. The creative backstory wouldn't be possible without the support of Juxtahub, Emmaus, Pennsylvania's Arts and Innovation Center, where people from all walks of life gather, create, and grow. If you've been inspired by a creative person in your life or have a story about your favorite creative processes, we'd love to hear about it. Contact us at thecreativebackstory at gmail.com.